Contractor's journey to self-mastery requires discipline, integrity, and respect. Welcome to Hammer and Grind. All right, welcome back to the podcast. Today I have a very special guest today. I'm excited to be talking with Brian uh, Gottlieb Lieb. I said that wrong. I just okay. asked you and then I said it wrong. Gottlieb is fine. <laughs> My last name's Hebner, so it's like they no one ever gets it right. But anyways, we're talking today with Brian. Uh, I'm really excited to uh, speak with Brian because he has successfully exited multiple construction businesses, and we're going to be talking about that today. So, Brian, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Brad. Really appreciate it. So hopefully I'll be able to add some value to those that watch or listen. I'm sure I'm sure it's going to be well worth their time. Oh, I, I believe it will be. Yeah. So. Let's give, give us a little bit of a background about, about you, how you got into construction and where you're at now. Yeah, well, I got into the industry when I was young, like a lot of people. You know, that's what's so cool about this industry. It doesn't matter what kind of car you drive. It doesn't matter what kind of house you live in. It doesn't matter what kind of education you have. If you have the right attitude and willingness and focus and discipline, you can build the career of your dreams. So I started off as a sales rep and doing construction work. But then in 2009, it was, I, I started my own business called Tundraland Home Improvements. I started in the back of a friend's warehouse on a plastic folding table with $3,000 in cash. And then after that, it really took off. That's uh, almost identical. I started in 2009. I had about $1,000 in the bank, a, a truck and a few tools, you know, working out of the house. So how, what did you specialize in uh, with that first business? What did you do mostly? Yeah, when I started the business, we were primarily a sunroom company. And while sunrooms are, it ran through my blood because it's all I've known for so many years. But as I started to grow the business, once I got to like 10, 15, 20 employees, I found it just wasn't as scalable because the complexity and look in business, I think it's super easy to add complexity to an organization. It's really hard to focus on simplicity. And I wanted to focus a business. I wanted to create a business that could be replicated. You know, when you have a complex business, all of a sudden you need a bunch of unicorns to run it because everything is different every day. So we pivoted to selling uh, one day showers and then replacement windows. And that's when the business really, really exploded. That is, I mean, that's such a key thing. I don't, I mean, you, you glossed over that real quick, but that is such a fundamental thing that I've talked about a lot. And that's like the, the riches in the niches idea, right? Like when you're a remodeler and you're doing bathrooms and kitchens and room additions and roofs and decks and all these different services every one of those has its own level of complexity That's and right. so you're you're and like you just said exactly you need unicorns in order to be able to do all this when i started i started out as a handyman because that was really all i could get into and uh you know even within the handyman industry like you're expected to do everything and so yeah. tile drywall you know carpentry minor electrical minor plumbing and then trying to hire people to do it's it's craziness so you, what led you to, was it just like pure frustration? Like, was it just, Hey, this, we're banging our head against the wall. Like, how did you, how did you come to the, have the, the foresight to like, Hey, we got to pivot and do this instead. Well, look, you know, when you look at some of the most, you know, we look at like Ford when they came out with their model T, you know, they didn't come out with 27 different colors. They came out with one color. I mean, there are plenty of <laughs> examples of how simplicity yeah. scales. And, and I was a living example of how complexity does not scale, but look, and I think, I think every business owner should think about what are the things you do 
But the, the list of the things you don't do should be a lot longer because when you start to be everything to everyone, you're, it's really, look, it's hard to create a marketing message. It's hard to create a point of differentiation. It's hard to teach a sales rep. It's hard to teach an installer. And, and stripping out complexity into an organization will, will, will help companies beyond their wildest imagination. And as an example, so in, again, in 2011 or 12, I was probably doing four or five million dollars in revenue. By 2021, I had, uh, I, in 2019, I should say, I started a business in Arizona, another one-day bath business. When I say one-day bath, if somebody even wanted a toilet, we would walk away from the job. The only thing we focused on was the tub or shower area. You know, it's about fanatic discipline when focusing on simplicity. So I opened another business in, in Arizona, and then in 2019, I also started a Renewal by Anderson window company. The three companies combined in 2021, I had uh, 600 employees and we were doing $150 million in revenue. And it, 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 the, the entire business is much more scalable when people understand exactly what they have to do and you can really replicate and grow. I mean, that's like, there's so much gold in that one statement of like, you just did showers, baths and right. showers, right? right? Like we turned down toilets and there's so much temptation of like, well, but I'm not getting enough business right now. So if I add toilets, if I add vanities, if I add the floor, that's more money I'm going to make. What do you tell people that like they can't get that in their head of like less is more? Yeah, it might be true that if you look at the single job, yeah, you could you could increase your revenue on that one single job by by adding a toilet, or by adding a vanity. But I think and, and maybe you can make your margin and you can celebrate your margins, but margins in business is only half the story. What you want to look at is you want to look at something known as your dollars per crew day. Because if I, if a one day bath and I can charge call it ten or $11,000 for, for a shower system, and then all of a sudden I add a toilet and vanity onto it, now it turns into a two day job. It's really hard to charge another $11,000 for a toilet and vanity. I can celebrate all day long that I made a great margin, but my dollars per crew day suffers. So when you think about every time you send a truck out in the field, how much money do you want that truck to bring back? And that's dollars per crew day. And to me, the most scalable business are things that can be done in a day and replicate, replicate, replicate. So that was, it's always been our focus and it's worked out really well for us. I love the simplicity of it. hundred uh, percent. What about the people though, that like, I am a bathroom remodeler. I am a kitchen remodeler that are doing the three week, the six week projects. Like what advice could you give them to try and streamline or simplify that process? Yeah. I think, you know, look, the consumer needs to be able to make a decision in all of this too. Right. So if, if you go to the consumer's home and you're presenting a full bathroom model and you have any vanity they ever want to choose and any toilet they ever want to choose and any type of floor, all you're doing is you're making it even more difficult for the customer to make a decision. If you want to do full bathrooms because that's just who you are, great. But you might want to think about limited selections in that. Maybe these are the six vanities you offer. These are the eight types of floors that you offer. And, and what it'll do is not only will it make you more productive in the field and you're team understanding what it is they do every day, but it'll also make the consumer, it'll make it a lot easier for them to make a decision. They don't have to make 150 decisions. They have to make six. You, you also, when you offer the same thing over and over again, you're very familiar with the cost. You're very familiar with the installation cost. And therefore you're able to protect your margins because as you know, in this industry, margin shrinkage happens everywhere. And, and often that comes from complexity. 
That's such great advice because a lot of these, a lot of guys that are small that have three or four guys, you know, it's a, it's more the mom and pop uh, operation, and they have they're doing remodels. Like every to them, every single job is a custom build, but they're not charging custom build prices, right? They're 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 charging the lower prices. So having the three or four vanity types, and then you can even scale out to like home builders. A lot of production home builders, there's three floor plans. If you want us to do it, it's three, four plants. There's four paint colors, you know, whatever there's, like you're saying, they've systematized the whole thing. And then if you want to go outside of that, you're going to pay a high premium because you're basically throwing a wrench in our process. That's right. So well, I, I, I love that simplicity idea. Well, you know, and also what you're doing is you're becoming more efficient for the consumer when you do that. And what that does, when you're more efficient as an organization, you're actually driving up their willingness to pay. And I'll give you an example. You look at Nokia, the phone company. I, I mean, they're still in business and they make like 10,000 different types of telephones. And then you look at Apple, right? You look at an Apple phone and they make like one type of phone, maybe different. This one has more capacity than the other, right. but, for, but they're not making 15,000 different phones and people are willing to pay a lot more for it because you can really specialize and get really excellent at something. And the consumer loves that. And Nokia is a great example because they were the the major player uh, back in the day. I mean, they they had the, the I forget the percentage, but they had the majority of the market share. And then almost overnight, Apple just like obliterated them. Sure, sure. Because they didn't they didn't they didn't simplify that, and that's exactly what Apple did. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, I mean, so like with and, and even like with the uh, simplicity of doing the one day shower, and this is where I wanted to go. It's like that people are like, but Brian. Like I get bored if I'm doing the same thing every day. I like doing variety of things. You probably uh, I, never heard that before, have you? <laughs> my advice would be if you're doing it, that's that's also a problem, right? If you really want to, it depends on what you're trying to accomplish, right? If you if you want a sure. job, you know, if you want a job, uh, and your business is your job, and you're doing and you're the one carrying the tools and, and swinging the hammer and it's all about the hammer, you know, that's fine. But I will share with you when you have a business that's doing that that's simplified, you're building a business and you're rolling shifts. You're not the one doing the shower. You're the one developing people. You're the one that that's, that's growing a business. And, and, and that is never boring by the way, because that, that offers a whole nother, you know, degree of challenges and opportunities though. But, you know, and along with that, it's, you know, when you, go from the hammer and go beyond the hammer. It's about building teams, right? And it's about getting, and, and look, it's, to me, you know, leadership, first of all, it isn't about you, but it begins with you. You know, leadership can be measured by how your team performs both in your presence and in your absence. And I think, you know, for, if you are thinking about growing a business, you have to really think about, can I tell you a story for a second? Yeah, please. Okay. So I spent half the year in Wisconsin and the other half of the year in Arizona. But, you know, since I'm in Wisconsin, like everybody, you have to have a Harley Davidson. And I love getting on my Harley and I love just by myself, just driving down some country road. The one I've never been on is the best. I might go halfway down a road. I don't like it anymore. I'll turn around, pull over. I might smoke a cigar and then keep on going. That's just kind of what I do. And that's fine when it's just me. But in business, imagine if I had... 20 other motorcycles trying to follow me, right? And they're like, okay, where are we going? Why are we going down this road? Why are we stopping? Oh, now we're going to smoke a cigar. Now where are we going? And I think what happens with business is that if you really want to grow a business, you know, people need to know purpose and direction. Why are we going on this trip and where are we going? And that really comes down to your mission and vision statement. And I think, you know, fundamentally, it's, it's at the core 
of every single business because it defines how people should think and how they think affects how they behave, which affects how they perform both in your presence and in your absence. So that's, that's a good uh, segue into the mission and, and vision. So when you started your first business back in 2009, were you thinking big picture? Were you thinking this is, I'm going to grow this to 10 million or whatever, or was it just like, Hey, I don't, this is all I know how to do. So I remember having a conversation in the back of uh, the warehouse with, with this production manager. And I said, you know, there's no like $10 million company in this market. And, and doggone it, we could be a $10 million company. That's what I thought was aspirational. Once we blew past that, I realized, you know what? Who we are is we're limitless, is what we really are. So let's not put a cap, but also let's have a reason to grow. When I talk to uh, companies in, the, in this industry and they say, yeah, I want to go to $5 million, my first question is why? You know, okay, yeah. what, what are the reasons? And you know, because, it, because it's more than just top line revenue, you know, how do we ensure that we're growing a healthy business, that we're putting in the right systems and processes? And, and to really... But the, I think the real pivot point for me personally, you know, if you would have asked me in 2009 what kind of company we were, I would have said, well, you know, we're a construction company. If you'd have asked me probably eight years ago when we were, when we had several hundred employees, I would have said, well, you know, we're a sales and marketing company that happens to be in home improvements. But if you ask me today what we really were, we were a training organization. You know, we, and if you think mm. about it, you teach your installers how to build, you teach people how to answer the phone, you teach marketers how to set an appointment, you teach sales reps how to close, you teach homeowners why they should do business with you. you know, you're a training organization. And when, I think when you make that mindset shift, that's when, that's when the organization truly becomes limitless. Oh, I love that. I love that. I, and I've said that before, like you're not a, you know, you're, you're uh, you're in the customer service business that happens to do X or you're in the marketing business, but really even beyond that is the education business. And that, that ties right into this whole industry wide, you know, uh, plague, if you will, of like the shortness of labor. Well, it's, I mean, you can speak to this, like it, it's yeah. a heck of a lot easier to train somebody how to put a shower, you know, a, uh, a shower system in than it is to remodel the entire bathroom. Correct. We we could te- we could take somebody right out of high school, and in four weeks they're installing showers in one day, and that again becomes a much more scalable business. You're not held hostage based on on labor shortage. But along that way, look, I think the key is, look, if somebody wants a job, I'm happy to pay them. If somebody wants a career, I'm happy to advance them. But what I really want to do is I want to teach them a skill, a craft that's full of purpose and meaning, so that their time inside of my organization becomes much, much more than a job or a career path. It actually becomes a pivot point in their life, a time when they're pushed out of their comfort zone, where they've realized their full potential and they're, and they're doing meaningful work and, and you know, raising a family and able to buy a home and all of those things that are so cool. That's, that's the opportunity for a business owner. Yeah, and it sounds like it's it was important and still is. So, like, really, when someone comes to work for you, when they leave, they're actually a much better person because of your organization. Yeah, yeah, we tied everything back to our mission statement, which was to do well and do good. And what that means is we said, okay, what is the purpose of business? Why do we exist? And we decided we exist to make a decent profit decently. And that was our, and and what does that mean? How do we have to behave both, and how does the team need to behave? both in my presence and in my absence. So let's talk about the mission vision stuff sure. for a second. Like how it, somebody doesn't have, they're listening to this and like, yeah, I don't have a mission statement. Yeah. I don't even, I don't even have a vision. Like how would you, what, yeah. where's the, what's the first step that they should take? Right. So a mission statement 
answers the question, why do you exist? What is your purpose? And your vision statement is something that's aspirational. A vision statement talks about what do you want your business to be five years from now? So you want to think about the future. And, and by the way, it's okay to change your vision statement every couple of years as your business grows. But a vision statement is aspirational. It's, you know, to become a world-class organization committed to improving homes, lives, and communities. You know, we win by attracting talent and developing people. A vision statement is very aspirational. A mission statement is, is, is very personal. It's, it's why do you exist? Is it to, to make homes better? Is it, it, what's the real reason that your company exists? And when you do that, you, you then start to attract people. And it's not just some poster on the wall, by the way. This, you, know, you want to really weave your mission and vision deep into the fabric of your business so that everybody knows it and owns it and believes it. Because again, how people think affects how they act and, and how people act is how they behave and how they behave ultimately defines the success or failure of a business. Uh, you teed up my next question perfectly. Thank you for that, Brian. That was going to be, is it just about putting posters on the wall or is it, you know, about the culture? Uh, I mean, what, how did, how did you go about really infusing the mission and vision into your culture? Yeah. I mean, so one way and I'm, over my, over my uh, shoulder here is a Guinness world record right there. There's, so we said just one example, if our, if our mission statement is to do well and do good, well, we know how to do well. That's to be a, a profitable company, but we also know how to do good. And one example is we put in windows in people's homes. And when you put a new window in somebody's home, you normally take the old windows out, you throw them in the trash. That's kind of how it goes. But we decided instead to work to give these old window sashes to local artists and community members and people in our community and business owners. And we would have them turn windows into beautiful art pieces. And then once a year, we would display all the art pieces and we would do a giant public auction. And all the money raised would go to make a positive impact in the life of another mm. human being in our community. The first year we did it was this, this guy named John Green who was stuck in a wheelchair for 40 years. I mean, just imagine that. Uh, we raised enough money to get him a, a custom wheelchair that stands up. So John Green, who's, by the way, a Vietnam-era war veteran, can stand up for the first time in 40 years off of windows that would normally go in the trash that were painted by people in their community. So do well, do good. And then one year, we just uh, we, we set up so many windows, we actually set a Guinness World Record for it. So it's kind of cool. Oh, wow. What was the record for? Just how many windows displayed? or? Yeah, we had to have... Uh, the record was 1,651 displayed windows. And some guy from Guinness came out and he was called an adjudicator. And yeah, he counted the windows and we became a Guinness World Record holder. It's kind of crazy. But again, that's just one example of how do you weave yeah. your mission and vision deep into the business. And so how did your, and how did your employees feel about being a part of that? And again, you know, the world record and, and the whole uh, giving back thing. Yeah. Again, it's, it's, if business is just about how many showers can we install or how many windows we can sell, it, it becomes very transactional. And I think that, that to me, at least, and look, there are plenty of organizations that are successful just doing that. But for me, for me, our mission was different. So, you know, I, we want, we, we want people on our team that appreciate those things and, and it is meaningful to them. Another example is something called, Baths for the Brave that uh, that I created, and there are veterans that have served our country proudly, but are because of mobility issues and lack of money, they're petrified of taking a shower in their own home because they have some bathtub that's hard to step over. So we started surprising mm -hmm. veterans 
with free bath projects on Veterans Day. This, this then caught fire, and now it's a na national program. It's called Bass for the Brave. You're welcome to Google it. And last year, we, we surprised veterans in 31 states all at the same time with free bath wow. projects done by other companies that had a similar mission and vision. That, and so the, the people that do the work, that, that see how this veteran's life has changed based on what they just did for this person, Look, it it becomes more than just a paycheck, you know. It becomes it becomes it becomes purpose, and when it's purpose, your culture then becomes very your business becomes hard to replicate because if you want to copy somebody's performance, you first have to copy what goes on inside of their people's heads. I I, I love this topic because, uh, and it's one that I haven't really talked about before. But when you create that culture, I mean, people can replicate what you do you know, the physical uh, service that you offer, but it's going to be very difficult to replicate that culture. And I, I would imagine that for you, it also helps with uh, recruitment, with hiring. So you typically yeah. don't have as much of a hiring issue as others because you, people want to work for you. The, the year before I sold all my businesses and I sold my Arizona business to, to Jacuzzi and I sold my Tundraland business to Leaf Home Enhancements and I sold my Renewal by Anderson business to to uh, my leadership team. But the, the year before I sold it, we received 9,000 job applications in one year, 9,000 job applications. But you're right, because people said, wow, that's the place I really wanna be part of. But again, when you weave your brand into the fabric of the community and you weave your mission and vision into the fabric of your organization, look, I mean, we're in small communities, word gets around, people know where they wanna work. And, and yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's pretty powerful. You know, I just want to make one more point. The other reason that, you know, this is because we're in the service industry. Look, it's it's not always about getting things right the first time with the homeowner. We all know that you have service issues. You have service issues. You have service issues. And we, we want to, our mindset needs to really be revolved around what's called service recovery. And I'll give you an example of service recovery. Uh, Brad, you and I go out to a steakhouse, right? And you order a steak medium rare and so do I. And they they bring out a piece of salmon to you and you're like, I ordered a steak and they go back and they bring out the steak medium rare and you're fine. It was a mistake. But if you order a steak and they bring out a piece of salmon, you send that back and then they bring out a pork chop and then they bring that back and then they bring out a steak that's well done. You're going to be like, this restaurant sucks. Get me out of here. I'm, I'm done. Service recovery is about getting it right the second time. You can screw up in this industry with a homeowner, but you better get it right the second time. It's when you don't get it right the second time is when you have a really, really tough customer on your hand. And I, and I understand why. Because service recovery in this industry is so important, the mindset of the people that are on your team have to think that way too. They have to realize that, wow, this customer spent a lot of money on a project. It's my role and my responsibility to make sure they have a fantastic experience. And that's a mindset thing. And that comes from mission and vision. So you said earlier about the, you know, what I call the journey from craftsman to businessman, right? A lot of guys get into the construction because they work for somebody for 10 years as a carpenter and then they start their own business and they're, they're really a craftsman. They're self-employed, right? right? Uh, and I've talked about this and maybe you can give some insight in it. Like the craftsman uh, person really has their identity weaved into what they do, their trade, right? Yep. Whereas a businessman is looking at it from, you know, from the business perspective. Hey, just a quick timeout from the show. 
In the next 30 seconds, I'm gonna tell you exactly how you can transform your contracting business. Imagine being part of a community of winners where you can find out exactly what they've done to be successful. That's exactly what you get when you join the Profit Club. But it's not just a community. You get lifetime access to all of my course-related material, including all future material that I add. But wait, there's more. Each week, you'll get access to three group coaching calls to talk about sales, marketing, and business problems and answer any questions that you may have. Still not convinced? How about personalized one-on-one coaching to help you overcome your limits? And here's my promise to you. I guarantee you will double your investment within 90 days or I personally will work with you one-on-one until you do. So don't wait. Elevate your game with The Profit Club today. Now let's get back to the show. I know a lot of craftsmen are stuck in this idea that they have to deliver perfect quality work, right? And and that's what that's the reason why people hire them or refer them in the future. So going sticking with that, you know, the follow up, uh, it's important on the follow up. Like, what do you say to somebody who's like really just focused on delivering high quality perfection every time versus just just enough? Yeah, I mean, again, it goes back to what kind of business you're trying to build, right? If you if you want a job and your business is your job and that's all you want to do, that's that's great. But you know, the problem is most you're probably trying to do proposals at in the middle of the night and you're probably not sleeping at night and one o'clock in the morning, your head is spinning with stuff. And again, it's, it's hard to go on vacation with your family. It's hard to do all of those things and you become almost like a prisoner to your job. And Mm -hmm. I, I don't think it's a choice of, I have to deliver great quality or I can grow a business. I think you can deliver great quality and grow a business. But again, it goes back to what is the business you're really in, right? To me, if you can train and develop people to be craftspeople and understand the why that they give, do a great job and, and have people believe that they should treat your homeowner's home just like it's their own and, and then focus on, on training and development and empowering because otherwise the owner will always be a bottleneck. I mean, that's really the choice, right? Your business is either going to be built around policies and bottlenecks or it's going to be built around empowerment and, and training and development. And that's just fundamentally the choice to make. Not always an easy choice because when the, you're the owner of the business and you got whatever, $10,000 in your checking account and you've got to spend some money for marketing. And if you have a marketing manager, do you really want them spending that money or do you want to micromanage it? Well, you know, the micromanaging of it, it just simply isn't scalable. To me, you know, I had an epiphany that when business is better off and the community is better off, I'm better off. And the business is better off. For me to realize my full potential, the business had to first realize its. And for that, the people inside of the business had to realize their potential, which meant my daily focus every single day is how do I help somebody else realize their potential? And and how do I never become the bottleneck? Because there was a time in my business where there was a line outside of my door for people waiting for an answer so they can go and do their job. So I remodeled my office and my desk had no drawers in it. I said, if there's a piece of paper on my desk, it's in the wrong place. And I'm just going to at least start there. And and that was my personal journey towards empowering others. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, I mean, let's. We all like to be the problem solver, right? We, that's, that's the ego-driven, like, hey, I want to solve all the problems in my business. And even though we'll sit there and say, I wish guys would just make decisions on their own, then we'll turn around and jump in and solve the problem for them because it makes us feel good, right? That, 
dichotomy of wanting to feel needed, but then not wanting need, you know what I mean? And so that, that's the, that pivot. And it sounds like you had that pivot of the line outside the door and all that. Yeah. And it's a process, right? Because it's hard. It, you, you don't get there overnight. It's, it's a process training and development and empowering and, 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 and people believing in themselves and, and creating a limitless mindset. It's a process, you know, it's, it's, and part of that, I think if I say, what is the, what is the driver behind that, right? What happens is people come into this business and, and they've never done some of this stuff before. So they're not even sure they're good at it. And it's kind of like when you have a kid on uh, training wheels and, and you want to take the training wheels off of the bicycle and teach them how to ride on two wheels. You take the training wheels off, you hold onto that seat really tight and you run behind them and you say, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. And then you let go and they're like, look at me, daddy, I can do it, I can pedal, I can pedal. In, in business and in life, belief is transferable. You needed to believe in your, your child and you need to constantly tell them that so that they can believe in themselves. The same is true with, with employees in your business. You know, people are unsure they're capable of doing what you ask of them. You, letting them know why you believe in them, why you appreciate them. Belief is transferable and it's, it's, it's a key fundamental to empowerment. Yeah. The, I mean, the soft skills, that's what we're talking about here, right? The sure. soft skills. And, and for, for that craftsman, that's, you know, again, that transition is like you spent 10, 15, 20 years learning your craft, but you haven't spent any time developing your soft skills. That's the leadership route, right? That's, that's the right. point of transitioning. Yeah. And along that line, by the way, you know, when you think about as you start growing your business, maybe you have a manager, maybe you have two managers, maybe you have three or four managers, empowerment without any levers of control becomes chaos. You know, I've got, we've got six kids. And if we have a, a party over our home and, the, and when they were little and there were a bunch of neighborhood kids coming over and we have, we have 50 kids in our backyard, we better have a fence around the backyard so they don't go running off into the street. That's a lever of control. But if I just have a fence without them to do anything, well, that's like a prison. So I also need a playground for them to play in. So, I need, so your managers need both levers of influence and levers of control. And there are certain practices to a good manager so you can sleep at night, you know, that I think a lot of organizations, what they do, and I've been guilty of it too, you need a manager. So you grab the person with the most experience and you put them in that role, even if they're not a good coach or mentor, even if they're not good at talking to people, but because you sleep better at night. But, but in reality, if you want to build a big business, you know, there are certain practices to high performing managers that, in fact, I'm going into it in detail in my new book that I'm writing. But, but the first and foremost is... If they're not a great coach and mentor, they're not going to make a great manager long term. And just just make sure that we're we're making the right choices so that you you have the right levers of influence and levers of control in your business, so you don't have anarchy. Yeah, that's that's great stuff. And I was going to ask you about your book here in a minute. Um, I want to shift real quick to all of the good things that you were doing, giving back. That all requires money, right? And and a lot of smaller people that I, contractors that I work with, and I, and I work mainly with guys that are doing under 1 million a year that are trying sure. to scale up to seven figures. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of this, well, the sweet old lady down the street really can't afford it. So I'm going to give her a discount to do all this stuff. Can you speak a second about margin? Like you have to have a, a healthy profit margin in order to be able to give back. And I like the term of, you know, don't run your business like a charity, run it so you can be charitable. And that's Correct. basically what you did. Correct. Do well and do good. And the, the better we do as an organization, the more difference we can make in somebody's life. 
And I think, look, if it's, if it's, whether it's a discount or a, or a free project that you do for somebody along the way, and, or look, it's, it's, it, it's not always a big thing. It could be the smallest things. When we would do our uh, music festivals that we would set up our bath displays in, we would uh, set up music instruments inside of the showers and music instruments and microphones and speakers. And we'd get people coming by singing in the shower at the music festival with the goal that once we got to a certain amount of people singing in the shower, we'd send a kid to music school for a year. And we've done it year after year after year. We've, but and it costs you $1,000 to send a kid to music school at, at a local music place. But, but the impact and the community involvement and all of that, and the brand recognition and the, you know, the do well, do good, I, I think there are all kinds of ways that you can give back without it costing you a lot of money. And, and look, in, in many ways, you can think of it almost as a marketing expense. You know, look, and, I, and I think there's, if you're doing something good for the community, I, I've had a lot of debates with, with people over this. People do stuff and they don't like to talk about it. And I get that. It's none of my business to tell you what to do. I'll share with you, we have no problem talking about it because I want to change the conversation in the industry. I want more and more companies to be, to be inspired to, to, to make an impact in, in any way. And if you're doing so in your community and you put together a press release on it or a media alert on it or put it on your website or something like that, look, it's, it's part of the heart and soul of your business. It's part of your, your purpose. And I think, it, I think your customer should know about you. And I think it's, it, as long as you're doing it for the right reasons, I think it's fine to talk about. Yeah, I mean, you're not doing it to manipulate the market. Uh, I mean, you're doing it because you truly want to give back. And I, there's a local businesswoman here who owned a jewelry store. um, And I used to, way back in the day, I used to work next door in a retail shop. So I got to know her a little bit. And she she had a full-time person whose sole job was to give money away to charities. Like on staff, full-time. And they had, you know, you go to their website and it's like, these are the charities we give to. And there's like 60 different charities on there. I mean, obviously jewelry has pretty good mark, you know, margins on it, but still that helped her basically become a household name in her community of like, look, look what we're doing. Look, look how much we're giving back to the community. So people, even if they thought they were paying 15% more for her jewelry, they didn't mind it because they knew that money was going right back in the community. Look, when, when a customer understands that we're not going to throw their old windows in the trash, that actually th- those windows can help make a difference in somebody's life. It's not always about the price, right? And if you think about the consumer, right? The, the, every business has a cost to produce something and a price you can charge. And the difference between your cost and your price is where an organization capture, captures value. The wider that spread, the more value a business captures. The consumer, on the other hand, they capture value between what they paid and what they were willing to pay. And things you do, the heart and soul of your business, how you treat your customer, how you treat your teammates, how you treat your community, uh, those are the things that really drive up a customer's willingness to pay because they want to, they want to work with businesses that, that make a difference in this world. So, I, again, I think it's, it's one plus one equals ten when you do it right. And I, I've seen that with my, uh, with my clients that are doing, that are very active. Like I have several clients that are on TikTok making videos and they're just culture videos of like the guys cooking lunch and playing around and having fun on the job site. And because the, the, the customer is seeing a healthy culture in a business, that's what drives them to hire them. It's not even a marketing, you know, it's really more from a recruitment of hire, you know, trying to find people but it's actually selling jobs because you're giving people a window into your culture. 
look, you're tearing up somebody's home. Okay. You're tearing up somebody's home and their home is their, their, their probably their single largest investment, right? Is their home. And people want to know that they have good people coming in. And that's more than just our oh, people are really good. Our people do quality. Okay. Everybody's <laughs> saying that, right? So I think you want to, you want to show that too. And, and again, as to your point, if you if you're doing a picnic, all that kind of stuff, like be public with it. You know, be public. Yeah, with it. yeah. I love it. Well, let's transition to exiting businesses because sure. this is the main thing here. Yeah. What, what's what's some key things that that got that that you know? Let's say I I've been in business for four or five years. I have you know I've, I've been able to hit two million or so, and I'm trying to scale this thing, and, and so I can exit. Yeah. Like, what are the things that I need to start thinking about and, and putting in place? Yeah, and just to to qualify that a little bit, so. Again, 600 employees with my combined businesses doing 150 million in revenue. I was very fortunate to be able to sell all three businesses for just under $100 million. So that's the kind of exit you can have if you do it right. I just want to I just want to put that out there. Yep. But it's about doing it right. So you say, first of all, what are buyers really buying, right? The first thing we have to understand is the buyer, right? What are buyers buying? In our industry, we have no guarantee of work tomorrow. There's no guarantee of it. It's not like you have in manufacturing where you have 17 customers that are constantly reordering things from you. In this business, we're always hunting for our next job. Sure, you might have some referrals and you might have some repeat customers, but the vast majority of stuff, it's a new customer every time. So what buyers are buying is they're buying, they're buying systems, they're buying processes, and they're buying leadership. They're buying they're buying an org chart. They're buying a brand. They're buying the idea that if we can throw fuel on this business, we could really grow it beyond what it's already doing now because they have the right systems and processes. Part of being a training organization, and by the way, at any size organization, the rule is this. this is the first rule of a training organization is that if it's not written down, it doesn't exist. If it's not written down, it doesn't exist. So, what, what buyers buy is they buy documented systems and processes. And if you think about you, the owner that's trying to sell your business, the biggest fear that a buyer has is if the owner gets hit by a bus, I don't have a business anymore. So you really want to make sure that you're focusing on clear, a clear leadership team, clear management structure that, that's delineated, that this person is handling marketing, this person is handling sales, this person is handling, handling production, and these this is our sales model. This is how we market. This is how we install. This is the customer journey. As you document these things, what will be interesting, the process of documenting it will make your business a lot more sellable. And then, and then at some point, you'll be ready to go to market. The other thing, by the way, they buy is profitable businesses. No, if you don't have a profitable business, it's really difficult to sell. And it's not so much about... The, the size, the top line revenue you're doing, it's what sort of bottom line growth. And by the way, also, when you talk about complexity, there's, there's not a huge market for a complicated business because, again, it's hard to scale. Yeah, that, that is, uh, that's some gold there. I love the not, not written down because that's, you know, it's up here, right? Yeah. We, we want to hire the lead guy who just knows how to do things the way that we do it. And then we don't have to give them any training or oversight or systems. And they just know how to do it. The That's unicorn. Right. And, and to get you in the weeds on, on how you actually take your business to market. 
the the worst thing you would ever do because people might say, "Hey, I want to buy your business. Let me see your financials," and you send them your financials. That is not the way to do it. That is, you don't send people your financials. What you want to do is you want to build what's called a pitch deck about your business. This is how we started. This is our journey. This is how we treat our customers. This is this is the kind of work we do. These are some scalable ideas that we could do. These are some markets we cover, but these are some markets we could cover. And you send out your pitch deck first. And by the way, this is our, our EBITDA. This is how much money the business is making. Off of that, you start to negotiate with your potential buyer. And if they like what they see and you can come up with a, a general structure, you'll get something called a letter of intent. And the letter of intent will outline what goes on with the owner after the business is bought. What goes on with the leadership team? What, uh, how much money are we going to pay for this thing? What, how are we going to agree on a price? What are we doing what's called due diligence against? Uh, well, you know, financial due diligence. So you, you work out the whole structure of, of the deal in, in a letter of intent. So this way, the actual contract of buying the business isn't, it, it just becomes much easier to get through the agreement because you've negotiated everything in a letter of intent. And don't use a regular attorney you want to use a special mergers and acquisitions attorney. It's not your normal attorney that you use to sell a business. By the way, yeah. Rob Macklin, M-A-C-K-L-I-N, is a great mergers and acquisitions attorney in the home improvement space. Awesome. Yeah. But look, it's it's it's, it's an emotional roller coaster when you do this, though. It's just, it, I, I knew how to run a business. I had no idea how to sell a business until I sold the first one. And I learned a lot from that, which helped me on other businesses. So it's a I just read a book recently and for the life of me, cannot remember the name of it. It was told like a story of a guy who wanted to sell his design business. He did logos and stuff and he was talking to a mentor and his mentor is telling him how to do it. It was a great book that talks exactly what you just said. And I, I cannot remember the name of it for the life of me. <laughs> just slipped yeah, well, my mind. Well, look, it's something that, you know, every business owner has to think about how, what does exit look like? Is it passing it down yeah. to your child? Is it, is it, and maybe, maybe, you know, going from a job to a business, maybe, maybe it's to hang on to it forever and it's passive income for you, which means you still need a leadership team it, or it's to sell it, which means you still need a leadership team or it's to pass it on to your kid, which means you probably still need a leadership team. And so I think that it's a great way to start is to start empowering people around you and start to delineate the different roles inside of the business and empower them and teach them and train them on, on, on how to be great leaders. How to build teams, how to build teams. Like, That's right. You gotta be a good team builder. Right. right. So exactly. I, I just looked it up here. It's uh built to sale. I don't oh, know if you read that book or not. Yeah. No, built I've never to heard of it. Right now. That's great. J John, uh, I don't know how you say that. Where, 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 low? I can't even pronounce his last name. Sid Gottlieb. Uh, <laughs> uh, built to sell, built to sell. It was a really awesome. good book, uh, talking about this, you know, this transition. Uh, can you touch real brief? Cause I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of guys have never even heard this term about the EBITDA. Like, can you just, yeah. what is that? Yeah. EBITDA is, uh, uh, I'm going to write it down, E-B-I-T-D-A, okay? So it's earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. You have your net profit of your business. But if you're not sticking around in the business, that means your salary would be added back to EBITDA. EBITDA is a number that is bigger than net profit. It, it, it accounts for maybe your salary, maybe you 
did a Christmas party for your team and you spent $20,000 on a Christmas party or, or interest you've paid for something or, or taxes or anything that's in your financials that might not continue if you sell the business is an EBITDA add back. And a buyer will negotiate some multiple on that EBITDA number. So when you think about it this way, let's say you're an owner, but you have a leadership team and, and you're not sticking around after the sale. And maybe as an owner, you're making whatever, $100,000 a year. That $100,000 is an EBITDA add back. So when you take a multiple on that, when you sell the business, if you're selling it, call it what, a five, six, seven, ten 10 times EBITDA, whatever that number is, that you, that salary, if it's a five times EBITDA that you're selling it for, that earns you an additional $500,000 because it's an EBITDA add back. So you really want to categorize things on your financials to, to make sure you can really think about what, what expenses wouldn't be here if I, if I sell the business and I'm not sticking around, maybe it's your vehicle, you know, your vehicle lease, whatever. Yeah. So, your, your gym membership that you, correct. that the company pays for, <laughs> you know, all of the creatine and the uh, protein exactly. and stuff that it buys for. Yeah. <laughs> it's also like it, for, for guys that are trying to do uh, creative math, the EBITDA kind of eliminates a lot of that as well from a buyer investor perspective. Yeah. And, and look, you know, you, your buyer might challenge you on some of that stuff. Yeah. Well, we, we, yeah, that Christmas party, that isn't really an ad back. Okay. It's part of the negotiation process. You know? Yeah. And so when you, uh, and, and I'm, I know your, your experience is probably unique to you, but like, what's a typical time frame of like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to sell my business. I do have everything, all the ducks in a row. Like what can someone expect in terms of time frame before it's finally done? Yeah. If you have your ducks in a row, even if you think you have your ducks in a row, yeah, yeah, they might not be too. in a row because <laughs> you, you have to set up what's called a data room. So every single if you're renting a, a space at the mall for lead generation, that agreement should be in your data room. If you have a compensation agreement for your salespeople, it needs to be in the data room. So when your data room is built out and you know you can build it out through the process, but look, if you want to take your, if you have a sellable business and you want to take it to market, and again, it doesn't have to be a $20 million business for it to be sellable. I just want to be clear on that. Uh, the if, if it's a well-run business, and even if you don't have your data room built out, you know, you could take it to market and in, in a, couple of months, you could have a couple of letters of intent and then call it a 60 to 90 day due diligence process and you're closed. So, you know, it can take you five, six months from the time you think about doing it, if you're ready to the time you actually get a deal done. But, you know, it, it you know, I, but a lot of it is thinking about what do you want to do as the owner? Do you want to stick around? A lot of private equity companies, what they do is they buy these businesses and they want the owner to stick around. And if let's say they buy the business for X dollars, they, they might want you to take some of that money and roll it up into the private equity fund, stick around and work with them. So when they eventually sell, you get even what's called the second bite of the apple, which could be as big as what you got paid for the business. Most private equity companies are, I mean, private equity is very active in the home improvement space. They're very active buying businesses everywhere. Their goal is not to hang on to them forever. Private equity's goal is to grab a bunch of businesses, package them up, grow them up, and then sell them, call it five, year, five years later. Usually private equity groups hold things for five years. So if you have the appetite for it, it, it could be a great journey for you. And again, you can have a second bite of the apple when, when the private equity group flips. 
Yeah, there was a local uh, HVAC guy here just right down the street from me, and uh, he, he had about, about 20 years uh, he had his business. In the last probably five years, just hockey stick growth, and he exited for about $20 million. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it was bought by a private equity, not or it was bought by, uh, I don't know if it was equity fund or whatever, but they the company had bought multiple yep. service-based industries, just yep. like you're talking about. Yep, and there was probably some private equity money behind them. There was probably some, you know, it comes, private equity money comes in all shapes and sizes, right? So. Oh yeah, yeah, and, and a friend of mine who was the he was the general manager whenever the whenever the owner exited, he became. I mean, he stayed on as the general manager, um, you know, for that. So, um, great stuff, Brian. I, I, this is all great stuff. Tell us a little bit about what you got going on. I know you said you had a book that you're writing. What's that all about? Yeah, so some of that. it's been it's been quite the process, by the way, writing a book. It's been it's been a year in the works. It's just about done. In fact, it's in its final editing right now. I, I was fortunate enough to have Forbes is publishing it for me, so that's really nice. exciting. And it's a it's a book about culture, leadership, and people development, and it'll be ready this fall. So it, it's called Beyond the Hammer. So oh, I, I love it. look forward to you picking up a copy. Hopefully, it'll help you think about new ways to grow your business and to grow the people inside of your business. Cause, because that's how you get there. It's all about building teams. I'm looking forward to reading that. Um, do you think you're going to release it on audible? Cause I'm an audible guy. Yes. It'll be released on audible <laughs> as well. Yes. Fair <laughs> Me <enough. too. laughs> um, what about, uh, I know you've also like, you're doing some speaking and, and different things. Where else can people find you? And if they want to learn more about what you're doing and how you're, you know, in the, in the industry still. Yeah. I mean, Facebook is probably the best place to find me. Um, I talk to everybody all the time and I, I'm always doing a, some speaking engagement. I just uh, got back from a pro remodelers event and a, and a Yoho event. I'm, I'm heading to Nari on doing their keynote on Monday for Nari. And then I'm speaking at the top 500 out in Vegas, the qualified remodel top 500. So I, I try to do a lot of speaking engagements throughout the year. And if you're in one and you see me, come up and say, hi, we'll grab a cup of coffee or a glass of wine. It doesn't matter. I'm good with anything. I love it. I love it. But I love the fact that you're down to earth. You're still connected to the roots, the blue collar. You know, you're not one of those unapproachable type people right. that are up on a pedestal. So I appreciate you humbling me on my tiny little podcast. No, that's uh, awesome. You're, you do great stuff, Brad. You know, the people that, that, get a chance to listen to you, you know, you too are approachable and, and you offer common sense information for people that's digestible too. And companies would do quite well to heed your advice and plug your teachings into their business. They'll be a better business because of it. So I thank you for allowing me to be part of it. I appreciate it so much. I really do. One last question. Uh, and I always ask all my guests this really for myself, but really, what, what's uh what's a book you're reading now or one other than obviously beyond the hammer everyone's got to get that but, but what's a book that you're reading now or recommend there are a lot of great books on on how to grow a business and how to become a leader I happen to love the book why the mighty fall and mm, okay. what, what's an interesting what's interesting about it is it was by the same author that wrote uh, good to great and great by choice it was the follow-up to those businesses as to why the mighty fall and they talk about the different warning signs inside of a business as to what causes businesses to really go backwards. And, and I just think it's a great read and it's something that should be on every CEO's desk. Awesome. I have not heard that one. So that's, that's new to me. I'm definitely going to take a look at that. Why the mighty fall? It, it, it gives an esque of like the Roman empire, right? Like right. why the Roman empire fell. So yeah. 
Awesome. Well, Brian, thanks again so much for being on here. I really do appreciate it. Uh, definitely going to pick out your book when it comes out. Guys, if you're listening to this, make sure you go get that Beyond the Hammer. When did you say it's going to be out in a couple yeah, months? Later or? on this fall. Yep. Later on this fall. Awesome. Yeah, it'll be so everywhere. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll definitely get a copy of that. Um, guys, thanks again for hanging out with me. You know where to find me on, the Insta- on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube. Just search for the Hammer and Grind podcast. And remember, until next time, Profit is not a dirty word.